Okay, hi everybody. Thank you very much for um, staying for my talk. Um, and I have to start by apologizing because I know it says in your uh, leaflets that Mez would be here. And um, I'm really sorry, we had a few logistical uh, issues and he really couldn't make it today. So hopefully I can tell you everything about Mez and the Worldwide Tribe. Um, so my name is Catherine Hajiani, And yeah, I'm here from the Worldwide Tribe. And so what we are is a grassroots nonprofit organization and online community which aims to amplify the voices of refugees, to raise awareness, and to try and bring a personal and human perspective to the refugee crisis. Sorry. Oh. Have I done? <laughs> yeah, please, thank you. Thank you. So we tried to bring a personal perspective to the refugee crisis to try and combat a lot of what we see in the media, which is often facts and statistics based and just written in really dehumanizing language, which doesn't allow us to really connect with these people who have suffered in unimaginable ways and is designed to try and make us feel fearful. So what we do is to try and combat that. And we do this through creative storytelling, through, oh, sorry through film, social media, we have our um, online blog, we now have a new podcast, um, photography, all of these different methods. We try to use these as a platform to allow refugees and people that work with them to tell their own stories. And through this, we also try to raise awareness and raise money as well for our on, for our on the ground partners. These are people who are working in refugee camps across Greece and uh, across Europe and the Middle East, who often they're individuals or just small groups of people who don't have the means or the uh, funds or the platform to raise money for themselves. So through our work, we use our platform to try and make money for them and keep them going. And in this way, we've provided camps across uh, Europe and the Middle East with basic necessities, things like tents, food, sleeping bags, clothes. We've also funded schools. And we have one of our biggest projects is our Jangala Wi-Fi, which it's often still very overlooked, but Wi-Fi is actually essential in allowing people to have a sense of connection and just not feeling so alone in a time where they're going through unimaginable things that you know most of us can't even imagine. And often when people arrive at camps, um, their first question is not asking for food or water or you know anything like that. It's normally to ask for Wi-Fi because they need to call their mum or they want to see if their family are there or they want to see if, you know, their children are safe. It's absolutely essential and it's something that's still very overlooked. So we're very happy that our Wi-Fi project has actually grown so much. It's now become its own organisation in its own right and uh, we've managed to implement it in camps uh, all over. So those are some of our main projects that we work with. and. All of this happened because of this boy, Mez, who, again, I'm so sorry that he's not here and you have me instead. But um, Mez is a, uh, he's now 18-year-old refugee from Eritrea. 
And in 2015, Jazz O'Hara, who is the founder of the Worldwide Tribe, her family, the O'Hara family, decided they wanted to foster a child. That child ended up being this boy, who at that time, when they fostered him, was a 12-year-old refugee from Eritrea. At that time, Jazz knew nothing about Eritrea. She'd never heard of it. I'd never heard of it at that point either. So I'm sure many of you have heard of it. But if you haven't, it's this uh, little country in the east of Africa. And what you may not know about Eritrea is that it demands compulsory and indefinite military service. At that point, when Mez was 12 years old, his father and his brother were already in the army. And he was left with his mother and his younger siblings. And he knew that his time would come, that he would have to be in the army as well. And all that he knew was he desperately didn't want to have to go and fight for this regime that he hated, potentially kill people, potentially die, and leave his family even worse off. He always says he never wanted to hold a gun, he wanted to hold a pen. You know, he was 12 years old and he just wanted to go to school. So he had no plan at all. He didn't want to leave his country, that was never the intention. But one day, the regime came for him. Uh, with two of his friends, he panicked and he just ran. And before he knew it, he was on the run. He made it into Ethiopia. And before he knew it, his country had become somewhere that was unsafe for him and somewhere he couldn't go back to. And then he was a refugee. And as so many refugees do, he ended up in the hands of smugglers, especially unaccompanied children. He ended up in the hands of smugglers and through, after some time of his family pulling together and begging and doing all of they could to get the money together possible, because at that point it was the only option for him. He managed to give the smugglers some money, and at this point he was put on a truck and driven through the Sahara Desert, a truck like this with over 100 other refugees, and driven through the Sahara Desert. This journey took 15 days. In that time, he was given no food, no food at all in 15 days. No water, well, very little. They would give you one bottle of water to share between two people per day. If anybody fell off the truck, which happened, it was, exa it was exhausting and boiling and they were starved, uh, the truck wouldn't stop. They would leave them in the desert to die. So 15 days later, Mez made it to Libya, which, by all accounts, is hell on earth for a refugee. So fortunately for Mez, he didn't spend too much time in Libya before he was put on one of these boats. Now, these boats are filled to way over capacity, and they're not designed to make these journeys. Uh, the smugglers don't join them on the trip. They pick some people, somebody, to kind of man the boat, give them a brief explanation of how that works, and point them in the direction of Europe, and just after that, they're on their own. And one night on the trip, Mez's boat capsized in the Mediterranean, and he thought he was going to die that day. Miraculously for Mez, he was saved by the Italian Coast Guard. He was taken to Italy, where he was cleaned up a bit. And then at this point, at 13 years old, he was on his own, and he started making his way across Europe on foot. He walked miles of the journey and bunked on trains where he could, and just kept going until he found somewhere where he felt safe. He did, it, the whole journey, he didn't feel safe. Um, and that ended up taking him to the Calais jungle. Uh, you've probably heard of the Calais jungle. It was in the news a lot around 2015, 2016. Um, Mez made it to the Calais jungle, and 
decided the, the conditions that were horrific. He decided he, his only real shot was to try and make it to the UK. So he started trying to jump onto trains, jump onto um, trucks, do what he could, unsuccessfully, until finally he did manage to jump on, he hid under the Eurotunnel train and managed to make it onto the train. And then he managed to finally make his way to the UK, where Kent Social Services placed him with the O'Hara family, and then he became part of Jazz's family. So the story ended really well for Mez, but as we've seen so many times and tragically have seen even this week, that's not the case for so many other people. So if you cast your mind back to that time, around 2015, 2016, when Mez made his journey, the Calais jungle was in the news a lot. And the titles said things like swarms of migrants and marauding migrants. And it was, it was such dehumanizing language and just so cruel. And Jazz was reading about these things, um, piqued her interest sparked by Mez coming into her family. And she just felt like it didn't make any sense. She was, you know, she wanted to know who these people really were and where they had come from and what they'd been through and how they were now living. And these were all questions that she didn't feel were being answered by the media. So one day, with no humanitarian experience at all, her and her brother Nils decided to pack up a car with just things that they thought people might need and just go and see for themselves. So they did exactly that. They got in the car and they went to Calais. And what shocked them the most, not just was the awful conditions, because people were there living in broken tents in the mud. They kind of knew it was going to be hard when they got there, but they were shocked by just how bad it was. But even more than this, what shocked them was just how welcoming people were. People wanted to give them everything that they had. Every person wanted them to come into their tent and make them a cup of tea. Everybody wanted to give them their food, despite the fact that they were there with this car full of things to give to people. All anybody wanted to do was to give things to them. And people not only shared their, you know, their food and things like that, they also wanted to share their stories. So Jazz and Nils learned very quickly, not just about you know, the war in Syria or compulsory military service in Eritrea, they also learned about the war in Afghanistan and genocide in Sudan and so many other things that they just didn't really expect um, what they were going to be hearing about that day. And that trip changed their lives. And so when it was time to leave, they got back in their car with a very deep, uneasy feeling about just how unfair that was, that they were able to get back into the comfort and safety of their car and leave that place just to drive back to England, knowing that night after night, these people that they'd met, their friends now, who'd, want, who'd shared over all of this stuff with them and been so kind, were making the same journeys and risking their lives to try and do the exact same journey that they were doing, but which they were able to do because they had the right passport. So they got back to England and knew that they had to go back again. It was just, they were, it's, they'd started now, they couldn't stop. So they decided they were going back and fired up from that journey, Jazz wrote a Facebook post in which she described her experiences in Calais and which she asked for donations. She said, I'll be going back. If anybody has anything that I can take with me, please let me know. And she wrote her, she wrote her home address on there. And assuming this would be seen by her family and friends, 
And she went to sleep that night, and the next day she woke up, and the post, I don't know if you can see the number on there, but it had been shared over 65,000 times overnight. And there was this massive outpouring of... The response was incredible. She was completely overwhelmed. Um, so much stuff that her parents were like, what have you done? It all started coming to her house. They ended up having to rent eight warehouses to house all of these things. People were sending brand new Amazon deliveries of brand new tents, uh, brand new clothes. They were making care packages and hand-knitting jumpers and writing handwritten notes. And it was just a really beautiful, really uplifting period of time because it just showed that given something to do and a call to action, people really did care and they did want to do something and people really will rise to the occasion. But it wasn't just an outpouring of stuff people had so many questions. And these were the same questions that Jazz had gone with initially. Everybody wanted to know more. They wanted to know who these people really were and what was actually happening. And they also felt like they just weren't getting those answers. So Jazz felt a massive sense of responsibility that she'd suddenly become the person that had to answer these questions. So she went again to Calais. And she met... um, she went back there and she met the people she'd seen before and she started to just repeat all of this stuff. And in an effort to try and answer these questions, she started to document people's stories on her Facebook. And this happened more and more and more until it turned into the Worldwide Tribe making our first film, which I have the trailer for you here. The life here in the camp is very difficult and it's very, very, very dangerous. Sometimes our friends, our sisters, our brothers died on the tunnel station. I want to say for the peoples of England, we are a peaceful people. We are a good people. the trailer and if anyone is interested in watching that you can find it on our website or on YouTube. So from then on as people started to become more and more displaced and more people were arriving to camps the work spread and uh, they started working in camps all over Europe quite quickly and in the Middle East and people kept sending stuff and they kept asking questions and suddenly this turned in through the power of social media, this turned into this network of people who cared and actually got stuff done. You know, when they would go to a camp and they were told, we, we really need shoes, they'd ask for shoes and this influx of shoes would come in. And it really worked, even though this was, these aren't people who, you know, these aren't humanitarians or anybody with a degree in this, it's just normal people who care. And it really went to show just how much 
individuals can make a difference. So the work spread, and we've gone on from there to tell stories on a daily basis and make more films, and now we have our podcast. The live Sorry. And now we have our new podcast, which is we use mainly as a platform for refugees and people who work with them to be able to tell their own stories. So if anybody is interested, I recommend you go and check that out. And so I'd like to tell you a little bit about how I got here as well. Um, about a year and a half ago, I was working in a marketing job in London, and it was okay. I was making okay money and kind of enjoying it, but I wasn't particularly happy, and I wasn't really feeling very fulfilled. And I felt very much like I was just making my rich bosses richer, and that that was all I was spending my time doing. Meanwhile, I've been following the uh, crisis in Syria for a long time, and that had deeply affected me. And as I became more and more disillusioned with my job, I finally decided that to, to find a way that I was going to put my energy into trying to help people, and that's what I wanted to do. So I went on a bit of a mission to try and find a way to do this, which led me to finding some posts written by Jazz on Instagram. And I then started to read her blog, and I felt like I was reading my own thoughts. And these were all of the things I cared about, and this is what I wanted to be fighting for. So I got in touch with her, I met up with her, and very quickly I started volunteering around my job. And finally I started to feel that sense of connection and you know, purpose and fulfillment that I hadn't had for such a long time. And I loved it, but I also knew that like Jazz, I wanted to go and see for myself and do my own work on the ground and meet people and really see what it meant to live in a camp like this and what it means to be a refugee to, to as much as you can as an outsider. So I decided to do a quick teaching course, uh, which took me a month, and I got a second job around work, and I decided that by spring I was going to be in Lebanon. And Bey uh, at the, at, in early February of this year, I flew to Beirut to start working with an organisation called SB Overseas. So... SB Overseas is an incredible organisation. It's set up by Syrians and ran by Syrian refugees in Lebanon. What SB Overseas has done is to establish three schools in uh, three refugee camps across Lebanon. One is in Beirut, the capital. One is in Saida, which is just in the south of Lebanon. And one is in Arsal, which is on the uh, border of Syria. In these schools, uh, small teams of teachers and some international volunteers like myself teach the children from the camps English, maths, science and life skills, as well as also running weekend activities for the kids and administering aid to families in the camps. And they also run a youth and women's empowerment program. So it's a wonderful organisation. And I went and I was going to be volunteering in Shatila refugee camp in Beirut. And Shatila is quite a well-known refugee camp in Beirut. When I first walked in, because... I flew to Beirut, and uh, before I started, I spent a few days in the centre of Beirut, staying in a hostel there. And then when it came time for me to go, I tried to get a taxi one evening. I couldn't get a taxi. Nobody wanted to take me there. Everybody said, no, nope, nobody goes there. You're not, I'm not taking you. So that took forever. I eventually got a taxi, and they took me to Shatila. Um, not right into the camp, but they dropped me kind of on the edge. And the school and the apartment was just above it, were kind of on, just situated on the edge of the camp. And as I was walking in, I felt this 
I wasn't scared. I was actually really excited about what I was going to be doing. But I felt this real unease because I just felt like I knew it was going to be intense and I knew my life was going to look very different for a while and I knew it was going to change. And immediately I, I was angry with myself for feeling that way because you can't turn up to a refugee camp wanting to help people and feel uncomfortable. But I suppose it is a natural feeling, you know. Nobody goes there wanting to live there. And I was also very aware that for me it was a choice. But for the people living in that camp, living there is not a choice. So, but it was a very humbling feeling and I suppose a natural one. So I walked into the camp. Now, Shatila is very different from... Um, if you've seen pictures of Calais on the jungle and other camps like that, Shatila is not a tent camp. Shatila uh, was first established in 1949 um, for Palestinian refugees fleeing the Arab-Israeli war. And it's existed ever since then, and Syrian refugees have moved in since the Syrian conflict. And so it's not um, tents, but it's kind of a series of makeshift concrete structures all built very higgledy-piggledy on top of each other and all over the place. And what it is, is a maze of these concrete structures. It's like a maze of narrow alleyways. It's dark, it's, it's dirty and wet. There's sewage water running all over the place, above your head everywhere. These are more pictures of SB. Above your head everywhere is this web of live electrical wires. And so it doesn't, it feels very claustrophobic. It feels very uncomfortable and it's also dangerous because Lebanese police don't enter Shatila so it's it's ran by rival militia and there's um, tensions between a lot of the Palestinians and the Syrians that live there and it's so over overfilled that it, it is a tense place to live and so there's often shootings and I would often hear shootings from our apartment just outside the camp so for the majority of people that live there who are generally families, often with young children, it's a terrifying place to live. And one of the mothers of one of my students once told me that during these episodes of shootings, all they can do is she takes her young sons and goes and huddles together in their kitchen, which is the safest part of their tiny apartment. You know, the walls are concrete, but the roof is just a thin layer of aluminium foil which, as you can imagine, is boiling hot in the summer and freezing cold in the winter and just offers no protection at all. And that's all that she could do, and that was her life. And so I walked in, and I felt a little bit anxious, and I went to bed that night. And the next day I woke up, and I went downstairs to the school, and like Jazz, in no time at all, I fell completely in love with it. I met people, I met the teachers that work in the, in the school, all Syrian refugees. Um, I met the kids. They were so excited to be there. They were so excited to be at school. I've never seen that in children in this country quite so much. Um, and they were so excited to meet me. And I've, I was so welcomed and immediately felt so at home. And so I was given two classes to teach. One of my classes was... Uh, the kindergarten class, so they were all five-year-olds. These were kids that a lot of them were born in Shatila, and so this is the only life they've ever known, which I found heartbreaking. But even more heartbreaking, I think, than the, the little kids was my older class of kids who were 12 to 14 years old. And these were kids who remembered Syria and remembered what their homes were like 
and their journeys and all of the things that they'd been through and the family that they had lost. And they struggled and you could see it. But despite this, they came to school every day and were so excited to be there and were such happy kids and so loving and so giving and so wanting to learn. And it was a beautiful, humbling experience for me. I, couldn't, I was so proud of these kids and just what wonderful people they were. And one day that really just kind of summed it up to me, like why I was there and why I wanted to do all, of I, ca all I can to help these people, it was really summed up to me by one of my little kids. It was a, one of my kindergarten kids. He's five years old. His name is Ahmad. This is him. Um, this kid is hilarious. He's already a comedian. He's so much fun. He's got the biggest personality. When I would walk in in the morning, he'd be the first person to race up to me. He always wanted to answer every question, even if he didn't know the answer. Um, he's just such a fun, excited, lovely child. And he came in one day and with the bag, and that bag was filled with all the toys that he owned, which was a few things they'd managed to take with them from Syria, and things that had been donated or handed down from other, you know, people whose kids had gotten older, things like this. He'd brought them in, and he asked us if he could give them out to his friends. And so we said, yeah, of course. And I've never seen this kid shy before, but... He suddenly went really quiet and he just went up to each of his friends and just quietly gave them a toy and a cuddle. And he didn't want any praise. He didn't want a thank you. He just want, knew that he wanted to do that just to make his friends happy. His mum later told me that he had absolutely like, refused to leave the house without the bag of toys that day. And to see a kid this little, who has this little, just wanting to give all that they could to see somebody else smile was something that I, I don't think I've ever seen that before, not to that extent. And it broke my heart, but it really summed up to me why I was there. Another thing that this experience really drove home to me is how strong a bond you can create with people, regardless of language. I could go on for hours to you about the personality of all of my kids despite their very basic English and my very, very basic Arabic. I knew all of them and they knew me and we could communicate in such a natural way. It's almost hard to, it's almost hard to explain with words. But it really showed to me that human connection transcends language and it transcends all of these surface level things that we try to use or people try to use to divide us. Once you really give yourself the opportunity to see that, it just falls away and it doesn't, it doesn't really mean anything. And it also transcends religion. While I was there, I was really lucky in that the month of Ramadan fell during my, my time in Beirut. I'm very lucky in that I've always had quite a close relationship with Islam. I'm not Muslim myself, I'm Greek Orthodox Christian, but I've had many friends who are Muslim and actually my best friend growing up is Muslim. We've been best friends since we were three years old and he's more like my brother and his family's like my family. So I've been very lucky in that way that I've just always grown up with it and understood what, you know, me, he and I have spoken at length about Ramadan and I've watched him fast. It had never occurred to me growing up to maybe join in with him, which now I feel a little bit bad about. But, um, you know, I would try and support him through it and I talked to him about it. And I could understand Ramadan as this month of sacrifice 
to try and... Sorry, I missed this slide. These are some of my kids in my older class. So I could understand Ramadan as this month of sacrifice to demonstrate your faith to God. I could, I could understand this. But what I really could not understand was people would always tell me how much they looked forward to Ramadan and how much they enjoyed it and how much they missed it when it was over. And I really couldn't get that because I was like, really? Sure? Um, so when it came time for Ram when Ramadan came around, my friends who were mostly Muslim in Beirut uh, said to me, you know, don't feel for a second like this is something you have to do. We don't expect you to at all. Um, but they knew I was interested and they said, if it is something that you'd like to do, you know, please feel free. You know, we'd love to, we'd love you to do it with us if you like. So the time came and I started fasting with them. And I actually found that, strange enough, eating, I was worried about that, but not eating until sundown wasn't the hardest thing. I kind of, sometimes I would be really, really hungry, but for the most part, I could kind of put food out of my mind until, until we would sit for our iftar dinner together. But I became obsessed with water, as all I thought about was water. Um, and Beirut was really hot at that point, so sometimes the only thing I could do was go and stand in a freezing cold shower, which was, did something, probably psychologically, just did something to alleviate the thirst. But um, then, once the sun went down, and we would sit to have our iftar, and I would take my first sip of water, water has never tasted that good to me in my life. Water was the most incredible thing. <laughs> I was obsessed with it. And I would savour that moment so much. And I really missed it when that was over. I was like, oh, I want, I want that back again. And I enjoyed that so much. But even more what I enjoyed was when we would sit together for dinner, this feeling of togetherness and camaraderie and support was at a level that I'd never actually felt before. And during that month, the feeling in Beirut was just magical. And I found that suddenly I understood it. I enjoyed Ramadan. I loved that magic feeling. I loved that camaraderie and us all just really being together. And as many of you probably know, Ramadan is about more than just abstaining from food and water until sundown. It's also about really focusing on being a good person and what you can do for others and charity and not lying, not complaining, not gossiping, all of these things. And I actually really found that making a conscious effort to do this for this month was such a liberating and purifying experience. I felt the idea is that you, through doing this, you, you become closer to God, and I really felt that. And I enjoyed that feeling of being so grateful. For, I've never gone without food or water. I've never been in a position where I can't eat or drink. And suddenly this feeling of being grateful for what I had at a level I'd never experienced before was... It, it wasn't just a struggle. It was, it, it was something I enjoyed and I was loving being a part of. And this is really one of the main reasons for Ramadan, is to give you as close a glimpse as is possible to what real poverty is. Because for even, even during Ramadan, you know at the end of the day you're going to eat. You know at the, end of the, at the end of the month it's going to be over. But for so many people in the world, that's not a reality. The reality is 
that's how they live and it's not a choice for them. For Mez, when he was in the Sahara Desert, that wasn't a choice for him or any of those people on, on that truck or the people that fell off that truck. That wasn't a choice. So the idea is to make you, it's a real physical, internal, to give you this understanding of what that really means. And it's a really beautiful thing. And more than anything, I was just in awe because most of the people I knew in that camp were fasting for Ramadan, despite the fact that these were people who had almost nothing and went without food, to be honest with you, already. Choosing to go without food, even more so, and give what they could to think of people who have even less than them. And that was one of the most humbling experiences of my life. And so, at the end of all this, like Mez, the time I was able to spend with those children, I was initially supposed to go for two months and I ended up staying for five because I struggled so much to leave. But the time I spent with that ch those children really changed my life. And the Syrian refugees who became like my family. Being able to be around people with so little but could give so much of themselves and be so loving and want to help others even more. They didn't see themselves as people that needed helping. They wanted to help people even more than themselves. And it was, that was a life-changing experience for me. And like Jazz, when I left, that was one of the hardest things because I left children that I loved in this camp because I'm, at the end of the day, this was a choice for me. And I knew that at the end, I would be flying home. But for them, they're going to be there indefinitely. And there's no, there's, there's nowhere they can go. So, but what, we don't do what we do at the Worldwide Tribe to try to make anybody feel sad or to try to make anybody feel hopeless or powerless or guilty because there, there's, no, there's no need to feel that way. And often people will say this to me. They say, oh, there's just too much. There's too much. How can I, how can I do anything? But the point is that actually as individuals, we really do have the ability to make a change, even just to open ourselves up, because once we start listening to people and allowing ourselves to connect with people different from ourselves, that's when we really allow ourselves to broaden our own horizons. Um, I have one more film I want to show you, just before I wrap up. I study agricultural engineering. Yeah, I was studying university. What did you study? Uh, energy. I'm engineer. Shoe driver. Mother. I work with British Army in Afghanistan. I was a cable guy. A job in the boutique and fashion, a man and woman. Mm. Yes, center Baghdad. My life it was good. I, I don't have economical problems, just I have my life problem. First, I have dignity in my country. This is first. Second, I have respect. Our life was so, so lovely. We have everything in us. I feel more comfortable in my country. But because of war, 
ice cape. But now we, have, we don't have anything because the war finished. Yeah. It's very difficult to live with the, without family. Without family, you just like a a lone tree. No one can help you. No one can care you. Iraq, Iraq problem. Iraq no good. The family in Iraq, no family. Finish. We try to forget what happened to us. We try to do something to, you know, uh, make better, you know, just football or some hobbies. We play cards, we play chess, we go to swim, we, we do, but just to make time goes. Just we want to finish the day. Nothing more, nothing less. But not to have fun because because nothing nothing will make us happy here. We are just waiting for a bright day. We are waiting for a bright day. I know this is a night. It's a night. One day will become a bright day. And we are just waiting for the bright day. So we do what we do to try and break apart these stereotypes, to try to spread the message that we are all the same and that we're at our best when we look after each other. And to make people feel empowered because as we heard earlier, we can't all help everybody, but we can all help somebody. And sometimes the smallest actions are the most powerful. It doesn't need to mean, you know, quitting your job and, you know, going to some other part of the country or giving hundreds of pounds to charity. It doesn't ever need to mean that. But, you know, maybe there's somebody in your community who feels isolated that you can reach out to. Or maybe it just means listening to some of the podcasts or reading some stories of these people. And then the next time that somebody makes a negative comment about refugees, you can tell them some of the things you've heard here today or that you've read. And in this way, this is how we start to spread this message. And I really do believe that once people, most people are good people. And when they hear about things like this, they do care. I think people just live in this quite blinkered um, world here in the West. And, you know, we go about our lives and it's only once we become, you know, exposed to these things, then suddenly we want to make a difference. And once people want to make a difference, that doesn't go away. So thank you very much for listening to me and I hope you all had a lovely day. Thank you. Okay, thank you very much, Catherine.